Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I hate Connecticut. I am totally going to move. What's wrong with Connecticut? I just get so tired of people talking about NASCAR all the time and the rednecks here and the way it gets so hot in the summer that you put your seatbelt on and it burns your flesh. And all the cowboy wannabes with their big belt buckles. That's Texas. You're thinking of Texas. Well, I'm still really sick of Connecticut. Yeah, but in what sense? Well, you get 20 minutes outside a city and everyone's into shooting and fishing. You drive three hours just to go to a concert. It's either hot or freaking freezing. There's no spring or fall. And Columbus is just a mess. A bunch of McDonald's and Starbucks pretending to be a city. And what kind of state motto is, with God, all things are possible? Uh, Okay, now you're talking about Ohio. Am I, Dave? And you know that how. I mean, that's what really frosts my mug about Connecticut. You people are such a bunch of know-it-alls. And grouchy, too. Tell me about it. I'm so ticked off about the constant, grumpy, negative mood around this stupid, godforsaken place. And the people are self-involved and hard to get to know. (laughs) You nailed that one, Dave. It's Greg, actually. Now what? Some idiot is going to come on the air and talk about nutmeggers, land of steady habits, land of clams and pine cones. <laughs> what was that last one? Land of clams and pine cones. Isn't that one of the cliches? Never heard it before. Huh. That might be Maine. Is Maine part of Connecticut? <laughs> you need to think more about this. All right. Well, it's time for the nose. And now the guy who's all like, Nathan Hale and the first phone book and we invented lollipops. Me, 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 me. Colin McEnroe. <laughs> I love that tone of voice. Uh, all right, yes, well, absolutely. We did all those things, and that's why people should love Connecticut, but apparently they don't, especially the people who are here right now. I mean, not here in the studio. but um, <laughs> And uh, so that's going to be the first topic on the notes today. Towards the end of the show, or at least after we get done with the first topic, we may uh, well, we will talk more about the Donald Sterling saga. I know you feel a little talked out about it, but... That doesn't mean we feel talked out about it. And I actually do think there are things not being said about this, and I want to hear what the panel has to say, the panel, whom I will introduce in just a second. If we have some time also, for me anyway, it's been difficult to listen to or watch one of my musical heroes, um, Paul Simon, it's sort of the great chronicler of generational change, change for my, within my generation anyway, go through this uh, dreadful domestic incident. So uh, if there's a little time, we might talk about that, but it wouldn't be the end of the world if we didn't. And then towards the very end of the show, we'll have endorsements, tell you about things that you might enjoy knowing about that we know about. Let me tell you who's in the studio, because that's something I do know about. Uh, Joining us from Central Connecticut State University, where he's a very important history professor, Matthew Warshauer, joins us uh, from Trinity College, where he's also a very important professor as well, Luis Figueroa. And then uh, joining us from The Cut, uh, an online magazine for the young adults about Connecticut, exploiting Connecticut's something, something, ridiculousness. It it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Right. We'll see. I'm a very everyone's moving out anyway. Somewhere. Is Teresa Kramer. And Teresa Kramer, I'm going to start with you because, after all, you do run an online magazine celebrating the ridiculousness of Connecticut mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And so, uh, just to set the stage once again, and we are happy to hear from you, by the way, at 860 We seem to be hearing from you already. Uh, callers are calling in. So, the Gallup uh, poll, they released this poll, it was actually conducted last year. 
Uh, and about half of Connecticut's residents would move to a different state if they, if given a chance. I'm not actually sure what that means, given it, like somebody like unlocked their key. I, I know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but apparently, anyway, if given a chance. And uh, so r- residents 18 and older were asked, regardless of whether you will move, if you had the opportunity, would you like to move to another state or would you rather remain in your current state? 49% of Connecticut residents polled responded that they would leave if they could. The national average was about 33%. And only Illinois, with just a, just a little tiny percentage higher, only Illinois uh, enjoyed greater loathing from its own people. Uh, we were at 49%. They were at 50%. So in some ways, this kind of almost sums up you know, quite a bit of the journalism and commentary that appears on your online magazine. Yes. we. The, I mean, the real reason we even started it is because we were sort of sick of people complaining about how there was nothing to do in Connecticut. And we're like, well, we're having fun. I don't know what you're doing. So we're just going to tell you about what we're doing. And I've never understood this. Living in Connecticut, to me, you're close to a lot of things. I don't – where do you want to go? Texas? No, it's a terrible place. I just got back from there. I don't want to live there. I was born in Texas. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Well, you're here now. That's actually their tourism model. This motto, Texas, it's a terrible place. Uh, She was just citing that. She's Mm -hmm. not actually saying But I just got back from a road trip, and I went to New Orleans, Austin, Laredo, Texas, which – most people do not want to move to, I don't think. Um, their motto actually is, well, they have these billboards now that says Laredo. It's actually safe. Like that's their <laughs> – that, it's not – so um, I went to Nashville, and I'm not moving to any of them. I work from home. I could live anywhere I want really. You're actually here of your own free will? I am. I know – I'm not chained You're to free my to go. mailbox You're or something. You're free to go if you yeah. want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've never understood this idea that people don't like it here. It, it annoys me, and I want to slap people when they tell me that. Right. Well, I see <laughs> that I could do be, that from the radio. And yeah. that so could I'm be sorry. part of the problem. There mm-hmm. are people here who will slap you for your opinions. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, Matt, I, first of all, I don't want to necessarily push you onto a particular set of rails about, about this. But, but as a historian, uh, your th- thoughts are interesting to me, too, because one of my senses of Connecticut is that it is a place of perennial discontent stretching back centuries, that that's almost part of the indigenous character is that people are grumpy about stuff. And I'm just wondering, I mean, if you ask somebody from Wisconsin, do you want to leave? They could have a moving van in the driveway and they go, oh, no, it's pretty decent here. Yeah, no, we like it. It's good. I like you know, it. I live in Wisconsin for six years. So. Yeah. They're, they're not going to say anything bad about Wisconsin. Um, yeah, well, so historically, is it is it a, uh, you know, uh, driven by the Puritans and their, you know, their puritanical ways. Uh, well, there's very few uh, Puritans left. There's more Catholics than there are Protestants in Connecticut at this point. Uh, so is it environmental? Uh, it, you know, uh, I think uh, Connecticut in a lot of ways is far more, and you can look at this in our politics, is much far more progressive uh, of late than it has been conservative. I mean, it's traditionally been this conservative sort of land of steady habits. So I think it's, it's quite different and it's more diverse now than it's ever been. So, uh, and I, I wasn't born in Connecticut. I, I only came to live here when I was in high school, and then I moved away for six years for grad school and lived in St. Louis and wasn't planning on coming back here, but that's how the job worked out. And I really consider Connecticut uh, my home. It's the place I've lived the longest. It's probably a deeply flawed, at least making a historical argument on my part, was, as usual, a deeply flawed uh, verbal feint. Because also, if you think about it historically, 
the Connecticut's attitude historically a lot of the time has been we've got it right. Everybody else has got it wrong. Very so you true. Think things, like, things like the Hartford Convention where you know, we were even sort of talking secession almost because we really just wanted to do things our way. And we really thought the rest of the nation had screwed everything up. Oh, that's absolutely right. I think that the general sense of this kind of concept of Yankee ingenuity and inventiveness, and that really is a very, very real and long-term part of Connecticut's history uh, of, of production and manufacturing and, and new ideas. And there's so many elements of that that really do show that we're kind of different and we do think we're different. All right. So, uh, Luis, um, you're going to have a different perspective on this. You haven't lived in Connecticut. Well, I mean, like I've lived in Connecticut now since 1990. That's a pretty long time. That's a pretty long time. New arrivals. A lot of us will call that a new yeah, arrival. Yeah. I mean, starting in August, uh, every day will count towards living in Connecticut longer than I lived in Puerto Rico before I went to graduate school in, in, in Wisconsin. So, um, you know, that I guess I have set my roots in Connecticut uh, pretty firmly now. Um, I want to say a couple of things. The first one is to go back to the Gallup poll that was cited uh, in the yesterday's WMPR story. Um, I, I try to dig a bit deep into the into the the report by the Gallup, the survey. Um, first of all, this is a survey that was taken in the second half of last year. Um, so things might be similar, might be changed. We never know, but I wanted to point that out. And second, there were two different questions. One question was, regardless of whether you will move, if you had the opportunity, would you like to move to another state or you or you rather remain in your current state? That was a question in which Connecticut um, is ranked number one ahead of Illinois and so forth at 50%. Um, the answer that they would contemplate uh, if they had the opportunity, they would leave Connecticut. Uh, for the benefit of the audience, the average for the states for the whole nation was 37%. Um, now, the second question, however, I thought it was very important, is how likely it is that, they, that you know, these people will move in the next 12 months, right? And there, Connecticut was not number one. Connecticut's still in the top 10. It's, uh, you know, top 10, and there's no big difference between the top. The top state is Nevada. Uh, at 20%, Connecticut is at 16%, which not, you know, given probably the marginal error or so on. Uh, people that say that there is extremely high or high or very likely that they will leave the United States. Um, I mean, the state of Connecticut. Um, so then that made me think this morning, uh, wait a minute, there is a difference between feeling dissatisfied uh, with living in Connecticut and actually making plans and thinking that you will move anytime soon. Right. And I think that that's one of the reasons I wonder whether we have kind of an endemic grumpiness. I think also, so, and, and there's just sort of questions of temperament, too. I mean, people in other parts of the country, people in the Midwest are less likely, I think, to express dissatisfactions that they have because that just isn't sort of how they how they talk. And I also sort of wonder whether it it, it speaks. I mean, we're, we will talk about some very specific things that that I think legitimately bother people here. But I think also, you know, a lot of that the way that the first question is worded. It, I mean, I, I, I like Connecticut. I'm pretty happy here. But what does it mean? I mean, if somebody offered me a Guggenheim so I could go <laughs> yeah, live in Paris. Exactly. Or, yeah, 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 I would go live exactly in Paris. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I mean, like, so, so people, um, I think, because I will, I will speak about this in this, in this other sense. 
All right, so we have lots of folks who, like you calling, uh, have spent your, 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 you know, your lives here in Connecticut, and then the other people like me who have migrated to the state over a number of years. Uh, I happen to have, among my friends, most of them, almost all of them, are people who moved to Connecticut uh, because of a job situation. They were not raised in Connecticut, okay? So among those people, some of them are in academia, where obviously, that's where I work, so I have a lot of friends in that world, but others are not. Within those, that range of people, there is a sense, my suspicion, and in some cases actually is confirmed, is that they were never, have never been happy with having a job in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. They have never really felt at home in Connecticut. And they always long for uh, one day the opportunity to move out of Connecticut if they were to get another job. So in other words, they settled here because they had no other choice. And they, they have been kind of disgruntled from the very beginning. Uh, and they would love to, and they fantasize continuously with the idea of moving to another city, especially to move into big cities. Mm -hmm. Do they skip about singing Someday My Prince Will Come? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, yeah, and we have a bunch of calls here, and I actually want to get to some of these calls. I think this is sort of a call-friendly, all men calling up right now. It's from someone too. And we have a bunch of tweets, too. But, I mean, to, to, the, to Luis's point, before we go to the calls and before I read any tweets, um, you, uh, you also teach uh, at a university, Matt. You teach undergraduates. I mean, I, my, my sense is if they're one of the legitimate beefs that people can have about Connecticut is what Dan Haar in his current co uh, column talked, referred to as urban vibrancy, right? People want to yeah. live in a city where yeah. you okay. can, we walk – down the street, you walk ten blocks, and you run into all kinds of different things. I, I think that's absolutely. I think that's, right. the, main, that's, the, main, that's the main disgruntlement yeah. that I, I know about my colleagues and friends. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think it's absolutely right. Now, a lot of my students express a desire to to move out and live in a city, and I, I did the same thing. You know, I did my undergraduate at CCSU where I teach, and I moved to St. Louis and lived in a city for six years, and I absolutely loved it. And I, one of the things I mentioned when, to, to all of you when we were preparing for this show. Uh, I was at a meeting at the old state house about three weeks ago where uh, Department of Economic and Community Development, Kip Bergstrom, and uh, Governor Malloy was there and welcomed everybody. And, and it was a lot of people involved in, in culture and uh, arts and humanities in the state of Connecticut. And the way that, that the governor opened the meeting was talking about how we need to make Hartford and our other urban areas more vibrant so that w with the idea that we know that our young professionals as they get out of college are going to want to go and live in New York City or live in Boston for a period of time. But there's going to come a time when they want to come home. And we want to have a transition place for them so that they can have some of the amenities that they experienced in those bigger cities, but that it, it, it's different, though. Mm -hmm. and, and I actually thought the way that he put it um, was pretty smart. I think so, too. I don't know. Do you want to react to that, Miss Young Connecticut? Well, I get, Well, so I, I did move away. I moved away for a year before and continued to work in New York and live in Connecticut after I moved back for a while. And I, I didn't like New York. Like, I think a lot of people think they want to move to a big city. Well, and then they exactly find it. out, like, oh, it's expensive here. I don't have enough money to do all the things that are available to me to do, which is what happened to me because I'm like, oh, well, I, all my money goes towards having a roof over my head every yeah. day. I think that's key. Yeah. yeah. And then um, and then I was mistaken for a farmer at a farmer's market and I realized I was in the wrong place and <laughs> I came back to Connecticut. <laughs> and <laughs> Here you're cutting uh, edge stylistically. <laughs> yes. You're a you're a fashion mm -hmm. trendsetter here. Exactly. This is before no, you no, got the no, cowboy no. hat yeah. in Texas. Yeah. 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 You can go to the 
Uh, well, actually, let's grab a couple calls here, and then we'll uh, circle back to the panels. I want the panels will interact with the callers too. Of course, here's uh, Thomas in Granby. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I just wanted to pick up on a couple different points that uh, you guys have been talking with about this. Um, I actually grew up in Connecticut, and at the age of 15, was transplanted to Florida by a career change for my parents. Um, and uh, having grown up here uh, in a small town over in Southbury, uh, myself, like most of my peers, talked about how awful it was to live in the middle of nowhere that Southbury was. And it wasn't until I lived in Florida that I realized how much there actually is to do in Connecticut and uh, a lot of the benefits. I actually came back here uh, three years ago to attend UConn. Um, on a similar level, I actually... Uh, heard from a professor uh, just a few months ago who uh, actually came to UConn from, uh, I believe, South Carolina, and she talked about how people are far more negative here about the state of where they live and generally uh, unenthusiastic about it than uh, South Carolina, where she had grown up. Yeah, I think negativity is one of the things we do really well here. It's something we should be proud of. We should be proud of our negativity. You know, you're, I, you're sitting up. You I, have I have, well, I have a real bone to pick with him. I mean, you were in Florida. You have Disney, man. <laughs> I mean, come on. Don't tell me you don't have anything to do. Actually, I was offered a job in Florida, and I went down and visited in the Disney area, and I thought it was so incredibly flat and ugly, I could not imagine myself living there. Uh, <laughs> um I don't know if you're going to go for another call or... No, go ahead, go ahead. What have you got? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, you know, we're historians here, two of the people here. Uh, as a historian, I like to take, like, longer views of things and so on. Um, and, and I'll raise it as a question. Is I always wondered uh, the following. See, the recent scholarship in urban studies has shown that people, especially people in their 20s and 30s, are increasingly moving away from suburbs and where they want to move to and are moving to are cities, the central areas of cities, generally speaking, within the borders of a city, not in the suburbs, but in the cities. And given that Connecticut is by far largely a suburban uh, state, um, I guess one can then deduct that this is one of the reasons why we're losing population, like has been mentioned here before. But I think that the question I want to raise is to what extent actually this is the consequence of the way Connecticut... Uh, state politics and so on um, evolve over the course of time. Because one of the things that surprised me when I came to Connecticut first is that by law, by constitutional requirements and other things, they limited the growth of the cities. They did not, Connecticut did not allow cities to annex other towns around them, which is the process that allowed for cities to become truly cities in pretty much all of the country. And in fact, even Paris did that for, for that matter. So in Connecticut, there was, it seems to me, I don't know the Connecticut historian, but always thought about this, there has been from the very beginning a very anti-urban attitude. Because otherwise, why create that limit? I mean, in any other city, when I bring friends here, in any other city, West Hartford Center will be part of the city. In fact, oh, yeah. probably probably all of West Hartford will be part of the city of Hartford except in Connecticut. Um, Our amenities are better than so, yours. So in a sense, in the long trajectory of the politics of town center, rural center, suburban center politics of Connecticut, it ends up having shot itself in the foot because that's where the action is in attracting both jobs, uh, businesses, as well as population. 
I think that's all very true, although I think also it's a mistake to overfocus on people in their 20s and early 30s because whatever this is, if it is a legitimate statistical crisis, and I looked at a lot of demographic information today trying to figure out how true all this stuff was. And there certainly is. I mean, there's a net population loss here in Connecticut. Some of it is people in their 20s and 30s, but but not exclusively. And and I mean, every, every generation has to ask themselves a certain set of questions. For people in the, in, of that age, Luis, that's exactly, I think, the question that they do ask. People who are, I don't know, in the 45, uh, 55 range are thinking, is this where my last job is going to be before yeah. I retire? Yeah. Or do I want to actually be someplace else in my, in my last job? People who are older than that are thinking, do I want to retire here? These are all, you know. They're thinking, do I want to spend my winters here? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they really, seriously, <laughs> yeah. they really are. I, we have yeah. a tweet here from somebody who says uh, uh, that the, they moved to Connecticut in 1999 and really, really like it here. Uh, but uh, it says, I, I will move to Connecticut in 1999, love it, but I will retire to Nova Scotia for the summers and Florida for the winters. And I think the following abbreviation is too expensive here. Um, too expensive here, I guess, if you sort of want to be able to split your, yeah. your life up kind of like that. What, what surprises me the most about Connecticut and talking to people who have lived in this state for a long time is how little they know about other areas of Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And over the last few years, because I've been doing a lot of speaking at various places, uh, I've really gotten around this state uh, to a lot of the small towns. And this place is amazing in, pl- in terms of its diversity and the types of things, cultural things that are going on. It, it really is a great state, but people don't go outside of it. It's almost a cultural, uh, our 169 towns kind of a thing. I stay in my town or maybe go to the town next door. Well, I think so much of Connecticut, I mean, I think we lack an identity, so to speak, because if, even if you were to ask me, like, what, you know, what do you like about, well, I'm an hour from New York and I'm an hour from from Boston. So, so much of, so when people go somewhere, they don't go to, you know, the town that's 45 minutes away. Right. They go to the city that's an hour and a half away. There's a documentary and so they called ma- that. Yeah. yeah. In Boston and New York. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and in fact, in fact, not only in terms exactly. of the towns, which I agree with you guys, uh, but also even the cities. I mean, let's say Hartford, for example, where we look, there are so many things happening in Hartford. Mm-hmm. And people don't want to cross Prospect Street. Let's say if you're coming from the west, um, Prospect Avenue. There's so many things happening in Hartford continuously. Events, you know, there's art, there's music, there's all kinds of things going on. And yet people prefer to stay at home uh, and spend hours on the Internet, on Facebook or whatever, and fantasizing about living in Paris or <laughs> living in, you know, New York or whatever. Um, and it, 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 <laughs> it reminds me of people who have a, I would say, very good marriage, very good spouse, and they're always fantasizing of that neighbor across the street or that coworker. Oh my God, that would have been better for me. And moving to Paris with that person. And too. Moving, <laughs> I'm moving to Paris with that person. Exactly. Life will be I mean, so much of, better. Instead of taking advantage of what is right in front of your eyes. But they, I, I really don't understand what. Although that's I happening. do feel as though, and 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 maybe even this speaks to the. I want to go to some callers here in just a second, but it may even speak to some of the uh, existences, uh, the existence of a publication like the Cut, Teresa's mm-hmm. publication, is. One of the things you have to do in Connecticut is kind of curate your life a little bit. Uh, you, you know, there's, you have to make some decisions. You have to be sort of aware of things. I, I absolutely agree. And I mean, if you want to keep busy, 
in central Connecticut or New Haven. or in, it, There's just a lot of stuff to do. But you sort of have to figure out what that stuff is and maybe plug yourself into some networks and be aware of things. And, I mean, Kayone certainly has, you know, weeks where she's just out doing something different every single night uh, because she's sort of aware of all that stuff. What Connecticut yet does— she seems so grumpy. On right, she's very grumpy. Well, she could be she's just tired. But— um, but but what you don't have is the more the somewhat more passive experience you have in a large city where you can walk along and there's this thing and there's yes. that thing yes. and there's this thing Unplanned. and there's that thing. Yeah. Walter yeah. Benjamin was a German philosopher and cultural critic. Uh, wrote a lot about this in the early 20th century, and he uh, uh, called attention to the figure of the gentleman in 19th century Paris who will stroll. The flaneur. Uh, and the flaneur, exactly, the flanerie, the flaneur. And so that's something that actually. I will confess, I go to New York City to do that. I try to go there frequently. I walk all over the city uh, because I miss that part of it. And when I go to and travel to other cities, that's exactly what I like to do. And I walk like a you know, mile, two yeah. miles or whatever doing that because I really yeah. love it. And that's Teresa, I think you'd have to admit, you can't be a flinner in Connecticut. You can't just sort of walk along. And, no, I yeah. suppose you cannot. You're going to have to get in that car at some point and get on 84. And, and then watch out for <laughs> Teresa because it takes her an hour to get to Boston and an hour to get to New York. So she's <laughs> yeah. going very uh, right, state right, police. So my concept please, of time is not great. Please be uh, <laughs> attentive this weekend as she's out on the road. All right, let's uh, grab a call here, here. Here's uh, Steve in South Windsor. Hi, Steve. Hey, Colin. How are you? Just fine. Hey, you know, I, I grew up in New York, Hudson Valley area, which I thought at the time was the most culturally starved place on earth. And I moved to Providence, uh, North Carolina, Michigan, Colorado, Florida. I've, I've lived a lot of different places, and I've always tried to avoid Connecticut because my roommates in college were from Connecticut, and I couldn't stand them. <laughs> and... Long story short, I met my wife and we moved to South Windsor in 2008. And I don't, I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. I lived in Boulder, Colorado. It's like mountain biking, rock climbing, all that stuff. I have that all here at like a quarter of the price and with half the pretendedness. <laughs> you know, like I, I totally see everything that you guys have been talking about with the perpetual grumpiness and the, you know, people complaining and you know they'll leave the drop of a hat. But you know, physically, this state you know, supply so much and tax structure wise and, and cost of living, it's, it's very competitive, especially to, to New York or Massachusetts, which, you know, you know, I could leave it. And I lived in both. Um, well, listen, that might even be a place where we have to at least end this segment. Uh, but thanks for your call, Steve. Um, South Windsor is the new Paris. Uh, we have to take a break. We'll come back. You're listening to the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Support comes from the office of Dr. Jerry Rosenfeld in Avon, the dentist who caters to cowards. High-tech, soft-touch, no drill, no noise, it's laser, general in cosmetic dentistry, 860-674-0707. From Sapiga Daily Pope, providing estate planning, elder law, and special needs trust services to protect your assets, your family, and your future. Sapiga Daily Pope. Learn more at ctseniorlaw.com. 
Tired of the supermarket? Why not forage for tonight's salad? I'm Ira Flato. Join me on Science Friday for the do's and don'ts of picking wild plants. Plus how human odors stress out lab mice and elephants in their own words. All on Science Friday from PRI. This afternoon at 2, support comes from UConn's graduate business programs conveniently located in downtown Hartford. Attend an info session at 5 p.m. on Wednesday, May 14th. Learn more at grad.business.uconn.edu. Sunny today, a high near 67. That was very soothing music. Um, I guess we have to move on. This is a fascinating topic, and we got a lot of great calls. We got a lot of great tweets at WNPR Colin. Thanks uh, to all of uh, you who did that, and our tweet master WNPR Colin tweet, tweet master Greg Hill will tweet right back at you. Um, so that'll be exciting. Um, even though we, well, one of the topics we considered this week was a, an article called "A Eulogy for Twitter," which I don't believe for a second. We're not going to talk about that. I apologize if you feel all talked out on the subject of Donald Sterling. I'd be even more excited if you didn't know who Donald Sterling was. That would be an amazing accomplishment to get through the last seven to nine days and not know who Donald Sterling is. If that's you, very quickly, he's the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers. Um, he has a kind of long, he has a, he has a long, a 30-year, you would say, history of being uh, a guy with unappetizing attitudes towards all kinds of um, uh, races that are not Caucasian. Uh, and he has um, a long history of being in lots of other ways, the worst owner in professional sports. Uh, and none of this has ever really caused him any trouble. And in fact, until just if it, until this tape uh, of him talking to his supposed mistress surfaced, he was on the verge of accepting his second Lifetime Achievement Award from the Los Angeles NAACP. Um, two Lifetime Achievement Awards for anything. One, It covers the entire lifetime. Right. Yeah. So that's a problem right there. <laughs> You're just upset because you haven't gotten one. <laughs> and, but to me, I, I, I just want to say the reason that I thought that we would bring this up, even though I realize it's just an overcovered topic in some ways, I'm still struggling with the following. Yeah, and Teresa kind of said this in one of our emails too. Everything that he has done in his life has warranted some kind of sanction. You know, I mean, re- re- ranging from how he ran his rental properties, violent. I mean, and he did. He was sanctioned, sanctioned by the U.S. government for that. Uh, but you know, running uh, his rental properties in the most dis- openly discriminatory um, uh, practice available to humankind. You just couldn't imagine being more openly discriminatory um, to the way that he's talked about his team and his players in the past and then really has sort of invoked all kinds of racial cliches and, and, and really, you know, some of the more bizarre psychosexual attitudes towards his team even before this happened. None of this ever caused him any problem in the National Basketball Association until this rather bizarre conversation surfaced, which seems to have been recorded in a home where his mistress, if that's what she is, is pouring juice for him. <laughs> and they're talking and they're having an argument. They're having a fight. And some of it seems to involve his displeasure that she is uh, depicted on Instagram uh, in the company of black people. And he doesn't want black people to come to his games, and which is all appalling. But And more confusing because I believe she is half black. So half black, I don't half like <laughs> she, right. say, she yeah. can't be in her own pictures. Right. Um, but I guess I'd, what I don't understand is why was this thing, th- why did this precipitate 
all of the discipline, all of the opprobrium, all of the problems when all the stuff that preceded di- uh, didn't. And I'm going to ask Matt first, well, because because you have explored Civil War attitudes, <laughs> Civil War attitudes, and a lot of his attitudes actually would have been very, very familiar to people living in Connecticut in 1853. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, the thing that surprises me the most, I think I told all of you, is that anybody finds this surprising because I, I don't. I don't find these attitudes surprising, especially from an, an old, rich, white guy. Uh, but uh, I think that the primary reason this has gained so much play is specifically because you had the recording. Mm-hmm. If you didn't have the recording, you wouldn't have to play. It would have been a news story. But to be able to repeat this recording, we are in the age of reality everything. And to have the actual recording, to see the video of Rodney King being beaten, that, that's what we love to see. It's, it's the TMZ moment, and that's the only reason that we're seeing all of this. Well, yeah, Teresa, I had the same thought. It's specifically what he just said, that you're in a lot more trouble these days sometimes if TMZ catches you than, say, if the New York Times catches you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this sort of same thing happened to Mel Gibson, right? Like, Yeah, exactly. You you know, everyone knew he was a Holocaust denier or whatever for years, but until he's caught on tape swearing at a cop, no one cared what he was doing. And I don't know why people are willing to ignore some of the more— some of the more devastating aspects of people's racism, because what Donald Sterling was doing in his housing discrimination was far more devastating than anything he said on that tape, which was just ignorant and stupid and really affected no one except for maybe his girlfriend, who seems pretty nuts herself. And so I I don't know why people ignore these much bigger aspects of people's personality and then just glom onto this. But if we had a recording or a video, yeah, yeah. if we had a recording or a video Mm -hmm. of he or his wife uh, dressing down and insulting somebody in one of the housing things, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that would have gotten a lot of play because we want to be voyeurs. Although although I I think there's uh, so often a sort of cherche la femme quality to all this stuff. I, I think the fact that it is too apparent quote, lovers, unquote, having some kind of quarrel. That makes it even more interesting to people. Luis, yeah. what were you going to say? A uh, couple of things. The first one is to sort of like uh, follow up on what has been said and something else. Then, um, yes, TMC is a factor. I think that social media is the biggest, bigger one. Mm-hmm. Because even if that, uh, let's say, 30 years ago, someone had this recording, it would have been played on the radio, would have been played on television. But then the voice of the reaction would not have been the same. And especially the, the voice of reaction, uh, not only of other African-American or Latinos or whatever, but also the voice of the NBA players uh, and people associated with that. Um, there's a great article today in the New York Times by Harvey Araton uh, that, that really reveals what went on over the weekend in the interplay between the players and other people on behalf of the players and the NBA commissioner that I really recommend that, that people look at. Um, and so one of the things that it mentions is that now the players are more empowered to present their voice than before thanks to social media. So I think social media had to do with it. Um, I think that the other thing is that we're talking about people here who have a certain amount of income and who are celebrities. That We're talking about people, we're talking about a spectacle essentially, right? Whereas housing, well, those are poor people, you know, they're not educated, they're just slum people, whatever. And so most people in society, honestly, do not care about the common people. They care about celebrities. 
So the fact that this dealt with celebrities, I think, had a lot to do with it. Now, I, I agree, too. And what, uh, Luis, just to stay with us for a second, one yeah. of the, my little takeaways from this yeah. was sometimes money unites people more than race divides them. I mean, I was startled to see that uh, see Magic Johnson quoted to the effect that until he'd heard this tape about how uh, Viz Viano is not supposed to bring him to Clippers games, he, talking about Donald Sterling, he said, I thought we were friends. Yeah. And I, I thought, on what basis could you possibly, possibly. have thought that, I mean, if you knew anything about him, if you knew the bare bones of anything about this man, what could make you think that you and he could possibly ever be friends? Except maybe money unites people more than race divides them. You know, I, I mean, and by the way, uh, the, the questions that have come up here so far about why ignoring previous behavior and why this is, this is exactly what Karim Abdul-Jabbar, the, the great legend NBA player from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, he wrote an article for Time Magazine Online in which he listed uh, incidents of lawsuits on housing issues, but also in particular something that Magic Johnson should have known because it happened in L.A. where he lives. And that was in 2009, a lawsuit against Donald Sterling uh, by the fellow that he had just fired after like 20 years being the general manager of the Clippers. Elgin Baylor. Elgin Baylor, which is one of the greatest legends in the history of, of um, American basketball. So, but in that, well, I just went to say, I want to see what was going on in that lawsuit. And so among the things that he charged in that lawsuit, uh, which actually he lost uh, against Sterling, was that he said that Sterling had a vision of a southern plantation-type structure in the way he ran the team. And that uh, he expressed to him that his desire was that he wanted a, a team in the NBA, the LA Clippers, that would be composed of, quote, poor black boys from the South and a white coach. Now, that was in the lawsuit. That was reported by the LA Times, among other publications, back in 2009 when, uh, when it was filed. How come so, all the NBA So this play? brings me to, to, I think, an important question. And, and you had said that you know 30 years ago because social media didn't existed maybe this wouldn't uh, you know maybe it would have been played out do you really think that this recording would have been played 30 years ago that's an interesting question as well we, well I, here's here's I, just to segue to that from that to something Teresa sent us, which I think was really interesting. And by the way, we're not going to talk about this too much longer. But if you call us right now at eight six zero two seven five seven two six six, you could be part of this conversation. Eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. So one of the things that you sent us, Teresa, was this terrific thing that Jimmy Kimmel did, where he went because I think partly because it was the Clippers, mm-hmm. uh, he decided that uh, that's the t- name of the team that he would go to a black barbershop, uh, and uh, and as the only white guy in the black barbershop with lots of people who are apparently customers sitting around and, and a whole bunch of black barbers and just talk to them uh, about this. And it, it was you know, in very Jimmy Kimmel fashion. It was very funny. But I thought it also had quite a bit of interesting truth in yeah, it. Yeah, well, at one point he says, you know, how, what percentage exactly. of white people do you think yeah. talk like this behind closed doors? And one guy was like, 92%. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the other guys were kind of like, oh, maybe not 92%. He's from Youngstown, Ohio. He had it, he had it rough. But, um, but I, and that wouldn't be the first time I've heard someone say that about what they think white people say behind closed doors. And, you know, now it's on TV. To me, that's part of this. Mm-hmm. Part, to me, part of it is that, that eternal question of, you know, I mean, as a historian, you look at, at letters people were writing back and forth, you know, at some of these other uh, crucial times of history. And sometimes the way that they talk to one another in letters is very different from the way that they are publicly proclaiming. 
uh, and and you sort of have to balance those two things sometimes. But it, you know, isn't this one of the big questions? Is how how much are we looking at an artifact uh, of something that people really want to know about? Which is what do rich white people say when the mics are off? Um, I, I I don't know. I, I it's sort of the Mitt Romney <laughs> question, right? When yes, he didn't yeah. think he was being recorded. Exactly. I mean, but I want to say this. Uh, I want the audience who has not done this, instead of just simply reading what other people write, to actually go to TMZ and listen to the entire recording, okay? Mm. And I'll say this. I want to challenge my fellow uh, Latino people in the United States who have access to social media and other media uh, to discuss this. Why? Because when you listen to the entire conversation, there is stuff that came out in that conversation that so far I haven't seen anybody talk about. Not even about my colleagues in the academia who are friends of mine on Facebook or whatever. The, the woman is mixed African with African descent with Mexican. She's what we call an Afro-Latina woman. And he challenged, he says things about her identity in that tape that are amazing. For example, he challenged her and said, uh, look, you shouldn't be taking this picture with black people. Why? Because, quote, you are perceived as either a Latina or a white girl. You are supposed to be delicate white girl or a delicate Latina girl. Maybe you are stupid. Maybe you don't know what people think of you. And so she then says, well, but I'm also mixed after, you know, black and Mexican. And I think that in a certain way there is another issue here, and it's a fear on the part of certain people in this society of the possibility of racial mixing, the existing of racial mixing on the one hand, but also the possibility of uh, alliances coming together, not only racial mixing between African-American and Latino people in this country. And, and so this, uh, there's a certain subconscious aspect to this. And this uh, Latino angle, I have honestly, I have not seen anybody bring up so far. Maybe I'm wrong. I haven't seen it so far. Well, I mean, uh, to me, w- one of the things that I trying, was trying to sort out, and I've actually listened to that tape all the way through twice, is to what degree are we seeing a kind of Rosetta Stone for a whole bunch of attitudes that a lot of other people have? And to what degree are, are we seeing two people's really crazy relationship? I, I mean, I, I almost, if, this, if Sterling didn't have the history that he has uh, for getting in trouble with this kind of stuff in the past, I'd be very distrustful of this entire piece of evidence because, I mean, I think if any of us just close our eyes and think of the craziest conversation you've ever had with somebody you were in a really dysfunctional relationship – with, you know, and the stuff that you said either to hurt the person or because you felt the person was hurting you and you, you I mean, I mean, people say really crazy things in those kinds of situations. That's that concern of mine is mitigated by the fact that his whole life seems to be. Well, this is why I always check for microphones before I have those conversations. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, but, you, you know, you check your students what you teach. Uh, yes, my yes. students have been giving me such a hard time lately. I've had a couple of students who keep smiling at me in class and holding up their phones like I got you now, wash hour. <laughs> and so, uh, but they are giving me the courtesy of showing me that they're going to record it. Uh, but what did Trent Lott have to step down his, from his leadership role for? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, he had to step down because he went to Strom Thurmond's what 90th birthday dinner and made tremendously racist statements that at supporting oh things would have been better in the South right. if you know what you had done regarding segregation had come. So we do have instances of this happening, and I, I think that um, in terms of race, I, I think uh, we we have in fact come a long way, and that's why. This, is, this goes to my question of would this have happened 30 years ago? I don't think it would have been as big a news 30 years ago because the, you know, the, the, there's been a huge cultural shift. And one of the things that makes me happy is when my 
you know, my uh, nine-year-old last year can come home all excited to tell me everything she learned about Martin Luther King in school. Um, that's a big ground shift from 30 years ago. I think that's a good thing. So we are making progress. Yes, I think that that is true to, to a good deal of an extent. But I think that at the same time, certain fears, uh, uh, certain feelings are getting exacerbated among certain segments of American society. Yeah, I think it's uh, true. Th there is a manifestation on that or among some Tea Party people. For example, the, the, the situation now with these uh, armed people that you guys discussed in the, in, the, in the program last week in, what is it, Arizona or Nevada. Um, and I think at the bottom there is also this thing is that people know that the demographics are changing in a very dramatic way. Right, this and, is going to be the last gas. This is the last gas uh, because uh, in, in, in 20 years, uh, white non-Hispanic people will be less than 50% of their country's population. Exactly. Luis, uh, uh, Teresa, you get the last word. Well, I was going to say that, you know, we've had a couple of vocal racists in the news recently with Clive and Bundy and with uh, Donald Sterling, and I'm sort of heartened that they're both old, almost dead white guys. Exactly. But, you know, it's exactly. not, you know, it's not Justin Timberlake who's secretly saying these things behind behind closed doors. It's exactly who you thought was a racist anyway. Although I would not <laughs> want to hear Justin Timberlake's worst conversation with his mistress. Uh, God knows what they talk about. All right. We have to take a little break. We'll come back after this. Their faces, it's like stripping the work of awesome basics and trying to understand with its original phrases. Donald Sterling really cared about V. Stiviano, he would buy her some more letters for her first name. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Jane Ashley and Skylar Magnoli. Greg Hill appeared in our intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Oprah Winfrey. For show pages, articles, and a PDF of the Faith Middleton Show staff's lengthy investigation into the Pippa Middleton false bottom charges, visit our website WNPR.org. On Monday, it's The Scramble, our analysis of the weekend news. And now, back to Colin. There was uh, there have been charges recently that uh, Pippa Middleton at the wedding, at the royal wedding, uh, had a false bottom on. Uh, we just felt that it was too supercharged to bring up on this show today. But there is, I think the Faith Middleton show staff has done a lengthy investigation. So read the PDF. Um, all right, it's time for endorsements, uh, where we ask our panelists to recommend things uh, to you. Uh, so we'll start over here with Teresa Kramer. I would like to uh, endorse Milky Spore, which is a <laughs> bacteria that only affects grubs. I'm so glad it's that and not something people do. Anyway, yeah. continue. You you use it to get rid of grubs in your lawn. And normally I don't care very much about my lawn because I pay attention to the garden and the flowers. But it looked terrible and my neighbors would probably burn down my house if I didn't do something about it. So this is an organic method that won't kill your pets and your neighbors and you. And it's you don't. You do it once. You don't have to do it again for like ten years because it infects your soil forever. And where does one get milky spore? I ordered mine on Amazon, but I'm pretty sure you can get it at any uh, ad any way. Street corner, or, really. Yeah. And does it work for <laughs> acne? <laughs> I'll try. I'll, I'll let you know next. <laughs> oh, next you. notes. All right, Luis. What have you got? Uh, a couple of things. The first one is I want to endorse the fifth annual 
Art for AIDS fundraising event that will take, again, uh, Art for AIDS that will take place on Saturday, May 31st, at the end of the month, Saturday evening, 7 to 11 p.m. at the Art Space uh, on 555 Asylum Avenue in Hartford. That's across from Union Station. And this is a great event. I've loved going the last few years because you get a ticket. It's a charitable contribution that you can deduct from your taxes. And it allows you to grab a painting, a small painting made by a local artist from the area, and you get free food, free wine, and great music. This year, the music will be provided by Accented DJ. And it, you also have the opportunity to purchase two larger paintings, again, from local artists. Uh, for more information, visit the website www.aids.ct. Um, that's aids.ct.org. It's a nonprofit organization, or call them at 860. 2478-860-2478. And the other one, very quickly, is one of the food providers at the Art for Age event on May 31st uh, will be a group called, uh, business called the G-Stream Catering uh, Services. And they also have a food truck. And this is really terrific food by Chef Gabriela and her partner, DJ Mal, uh, that, that will be served, that served all over town in you know, fundraising events, other activities, corporate events. You can have a first chance to taste their great food tomorrow at Elizabeth Park from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the second annual Holistic and, uh, Lifestyle Festival. And that will be again tomorrow, Saturday, at Elizabeth Park from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. For more information about the G-Stream Catering Service, you go to www.thegstream, one word, thegstream.com, or call them at 860-992-9214. He's got phone numbers. He's got all kinds of stuff over there. What have you got, Matthew? I'm telling you, how do I follow that That's endorsement? Right. <laughs> Uh, in all seriousness, I want to endorse the great state of Connecticut. Que transtulit sustene. He who is transplanted is sustained. That is our state motto. We've had a lot of transplants to this state who I think have found it a pretty great place. I think everybody needs to stop being so damn grumpy. Uh, and with that in mind, more specifically, uh, you want to know about cultural things to do in Connecticut? Go to the Connecticut Humanities website and look at their calendar. There are tons of cool cultural stuff that's going on around here. ConnecticutHumanities.org. You can go to ConnecticutHistory.org and learn about all kinds of neat stuff that's the been done. Connecticut Council on the Arts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Connecticut Council on the Arts. I mean, Connecticut Humanities is a fantastic organization. I've been involved with them for a long time. Um, you should go and check out their website. You should see what they're letting you know what's going on around here. All right. I am about to win uh, or set a record for the world's most unnecessary endorsement. A drum roll, please. We don't have a drum roll. Um, so I'm going to endorse The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. And uh, obviously this one a Pulitzer Prize for fiction. It's been on the bestseller list for 25 weeks or something. It doesn't really need my help. But I did read all 800 pages of it or 770-something pages of it. And it's marvelous. I mean it really is all of the things that you love about a 19th century novel, a Dickens novel, but set in 2014 with a lot of the realities and some of the – the, uh, maybe a greater comfort with moral ambiguity than a writer like Dickens had. And so there are pluses and minuses to that. But it is spellbinding. It's a page turner. It, the prose is lapidary. I mean, it's worth rereading just to, to soak up some of her imagery and some of her prose. Uh, and so it really is. It's, if you've been intimidated by the length, don't, don't be. You'll whiz right through it. You'll be reading it. Stoplights and stuff like that. Also, really quickly, uh, on the New York Review of Books website on their blog, a, a short essay called Pain and Parentheses by Christopher Benfee. It made me think we should do a whole show about parentheses and what's inside parentheses. Thanks to this panel, and we'll be back on Monday with a scrim. 
I'm Kyone Wolf. It's official. I'm moving to Portland, Oregon, where there's people with dreadlocks and tattoos and pipes for tobacco use only. But then you won't stand out at all. You'll just be another person with dreads, tattoos, and pipes for tobacco use only. You won't be unique like you are here. Unique this! <laughs> <laughs>